Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Greg Baylor. Greg serves as the senior counsel for the Alliance for Defending Freedom, where he is the director of the Center for Religious Schools and senior counsel for government affairs. And Greg, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Deacon Jeff. So it's been probably a couple of year and a half, two years since you were on and and we were talking about the, the train wreck, which was the Equality Act. And now we have, uh, as you were mentioned uh, before we came on, something maybe not quite as onerous, but kind of with the same um, focus, and that's called the Respect for Marriage Act that is uh, kind of passed the Congress and has gotten approval in the Senate, although they haven't officially voted on it yet. Um, maybe you can just, in a nutshell, kind of talk about the Respect for Marriage Act and why we should be so concerned that the name has nothing to do with what it's trying to do. Yeah, like the Equality Act, it poses a pretty significant risk to religious Americans, both individuals and organizations. Um, Like the Equality Act, it hopes to cement into federal law the idea that uh, marriage is not the institution defined by God consisting of a a union of one man and one woman, uh, but goes obviously far beyond that. Uh, This piece of legislation does a couple of things. The first thing it does is to repeal the Defense of Marriage Act uh, that was passed by a huge bipartisan majorities and signed by President Clinton in the 1990s. It also imposes an obligation on many, including potentially religious organizations, to recognize same-sex marriage, and that's the piece that creates a lot of the religious liberty problems. And then the last thing it does is to define marriage uh, for federal government purpose. And each one of those elements really creates problems, particularly the second two. Um, and really, it just it opens people up and organizations specifically um, to litigation, right? I mean, it just seems like reading this piece of work, it seems like, uh, you know, Jack the cake baker, who's been attacked how many times, uh, is just going to kind of open Pandora's box for lawsuits on anybody who doesn't agree. Yeah, it certainly fosters and furthers the sort of hostility that's led to the attacks on on creative professionals like Jack Phillips. ADF has a case involving Lori Smith, who's a website designer that's going to go in front of the Supreme Court on December 5th. Uh, but yeah, there's this part of the bill that requires recognition of same-sex marriages. Now, that obligation applies mostly to state and local governments. They're already subject to that requirement because of the Supreme Court's decision in the Obergefell case, but it doesn't stop there. It says that if you're, quote, acting under color of state law, you have to recognize same-sex marriage. Now, who is that? That means organizations, religious organizations included, that work closely with government. And that doesn't necessarily mean and probably doesn't mean uh, people running for-profit businesses like Jack Phillips and Baron L. Stutzman, the florist in Washington State. But the courts have said that faith-based adoption and foster placement agencies, because they frequently work closely with government, can satisfy this 
kind of technical requirement of being a state actor or acting under color of state law. So a lot of our concern about this is that it opens up the door to litigation, time-consuming, harassing, expensive litigation against organizations that are just trying to do good. And they don't just create this requirement, but they create mechanisms to enforce it. The Department of Justice can come after you. They create a private right of action for activist organizations to come after you. So it, yeah, it, it really does create problems for people who are doing great work that we ought to be applauding. And you mentioned the Obergefell decision, which I think was like in 2015. And if people read that, I think it was Justice Kennedy that wrote the majority opinion. It was all about emotions and, and, and feelings for people. It really wasn't even a good, uh, a good outcome on that because it didn't even make legal sense when I read it. So what did Obergefell not do that they feel they need, they're compelled to do in this so-called Respect for Marriage Act? Yeah, so this all started when, ironically enough, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs case in June. Um, the reason Dobbs is even remotely relevant to Obergefell and same-sex marriage is because the foundation of the alleged abortion right articulated in Roe and later in Casey is this kind of interesting idea that the due process clause, which is about process of the Constitution, creates substantive rights. So this idea of substantive due process was the foundation for the Roe right, the alleged right to abortion. Now, the issue, the thing that concerns people on the other side of this issue is that Obergefell rested in part on this so-called substantive due process theory. And uh, supporters of same-sex marriage said, wait a minute, if the Supreme Court can overturn Roe, they're going to overturn Obergefell. Well, this is just in f not the case. I mean, the Supreme Court itself, the majority opinion, went to great lengths to distinguish the two circumstances and said, look, this is just not the same thing. You know, Justice Thomas wrote a concurrence that added a little bit of fuel to the fire. But I think, you know, even Justice Breyer, uh, former Justice Breyer, has conceded that Obergefell is not under threat. So they claim that they need this act to codify Obergefell in the event that the Supreme Court overturns it, then you'll still have a right under the statutes that Congress has adopted. And again, they don't stop there. They don't just, that's one of the myths about this bill is that it simply codifies Obergefell. Well, if it simply codified Obergefell, it wouldn't impose this obligation on religious organizations and others to recognize same-sex marriage. Well, and when you look at this and you look at the Equality Act, I mean, really what it is is trying to stamp out any kind of dissent, right? It's almost feel like we're trying to create an authoritarian country where if you agree with us, great. But if not, you will be silenced and you will be harassed. I mean, the the protection of free speech sure doesn't seem to be uh, embraced in this bill. Yeah, it really does lay the foundation for further erosion of our rights, and it really does that in a couple of ways. Uh, the first thing it does is that it gives the Internal Revenue Service one more thing to point at if and when it decides that religious or any nonprofit that's not on board with same-sex marriage 
should lose their tax-exempt status. You need to understand a little bit about how the IRS determines whether an entity is charitable or not. And the, re- the reality is, yes, there are some, is some guidance in the statutes of Congress wrote and the regulations that have been adopted, but they have discretion. And if they determine that a nonprofit is acting inconsistently with, quote, national policy or established public policy, then they can strip an entity of its tax-exempt status. And our concern is they're going to point at the Respect for Marriage Act and say, hey, same-sex marriage is a firm, established national policy, and you've got all these nonprofits out here who aren't on board with it. Let's take away their tax-exempt status. The other thing it does, it actually could make it harder for people, really anybody, to win a religious liberty case. In a lot of religious liberty cases, the judges are balancing things. They're weighing one thing against another. They're weighing the kind of burden on the person's exercise of religion against the government's interests. What are they trying to achieve through the imposition of this burden on the religious person? And if the state's interest is compelling enough, the court can say, you know what? We recognize your rights have been burdened too bad. The state's interest is weighty enough to outweigh your uh, infringement of your rights. Now, how do they decide how weighty that interest is? They look around at other things. And one of the things they're going to look at is the respect for marriage and say, look, Congress itself has codified same-sex marriage. This must be an important interest. Therefore, we're going to have this person lose their religious liberty case. So yeah, it really does lay the foundation for further erosion of religious freedom. And, you know, with this one, as well as the Equality Act, you know, the the, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints caved again, right? Eventually it was just like, okay, we're okay with this. It's almost like they are appealing to uh, public opinion. And, you know, when you thought you had a conservative faith community that was going to help against these things, it doesn't do any good for them just to cave and or come up with these uh, amendments to it that really aren't that effective. And it really it becomes discouraging to see one faith after another just kind of embrace this and almost throw in the towel. It feels like a boxer given up. Yeah, it's certainly disappointing that the LDS Church has uh, thrown its support behind this piece of legislation. Um, You know, I can't get inside their heads and decide what their rationale and motivation is. Uh, I would say I'm not surprised by that, by this, because, you know, first in Utah, you had a piece of legislation called the Utah Compromise, which enshrined sexual orientation and gender identity in uh, as protected classes in state law in exchange for some limited religious liberty pro- uh, protections. You had the, uh, the LDS Church support a federal uh somewhat similar piece of legislation called the Fairness for All Act in the last two Congresses. So, yeah, this is uh, disappointing, but not surprising. But, you know, it does bear noting that the two largest religious communities in the country, the the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention, have both uh, condemned the religious freedom, or the I'm sorry, the Respect for Marriage Act in no uncertain terms. So there's a lot of folks in there pitching, trying to be a counterweight to some of the others who have come out in favor of this bill. Well, and rightfully so. And I, I've actually worked with the LDS Church and some of their elders. And I, I asked them one time, I said, you know, why aren't you helping support 
this, you know, marriage and this type of thing. And, and their answer was, it's, we don't want to get involved politically. So I asked them, well, where do you, where is the line between political and moral? And they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, you know, I can't answer that question. So mm-hmm. it's just kind of a, a safe cover for them. This everybody to say it's too political and we're not political when everything has been hijacked politically. And it just, you know, we see that it's, it's, a, it's really a, a coward's way out. Um, but, you know, look, Republicans are back in this, too. Right. I think it was up to 45 House Republicans and we had 12 Senate Republicans uh, that voted uh, in support of this, although it hasn't been officially voted on in the Senate. Um, so to think this is just a Democratic thing, the Republicans are caving on this or it wouldn't even be an issue, would it? You know, yeah, that's exactly right. So over in the House, the bill was introduced on day one and day two. It was it was voted on. And there there I mean, I, I credit the Republicans who voted against it. Uh, those who voted for it uh, to be charitable, they may not have had time to understand all the religious liberty ramifications of it. You know, the fact of the matter is that 70 percent of the American people do support same-sex marriage. And a lot of the Republicans, I'm guessing, simply thought this was codifying something that's popular, right, with the American public. Well, popularity is not necessarily always the test for what you vote for, but even worse, it, as I said before, this bill doesn't just codify same-sex marriage. In the Senate, it's been a little bit different. You've had more time for contemplation. It wasn't quite the rush, although they're not doing this the right way. They didn't have a committee hearing and a markup and all of that stuff. They are trying to jam this through without regular order. But it is different in the sense that you there was a recognition in the Senate that there were, were religious liberty problems with the bill. And so you had Senator Collins from Maine and Senator Baldwin from Wisconsin come up with an an alternative version that purports to have religious liberty protections, but those really don't amount to much at all. But it gave enough Republicans uh, sort of cover to say, okay, let's go ahead and debate the bill. The vote that's already occurred was on cloture so that you could actually have a debate on the bill. Um, and so we're, you know, we're still pitching, right? We're still hoping that there will be, um, uh, further action on the bill that would actually stop it and perhaps even improve it. So the game is not over yet, but yeah, the dynamic has been a little bit disappointing. Well, and it's interesting, you know, those who say, you know, I didn't quite fully understand it. Well, I don't know how you run your house, Greg, but with my kids, if I didn't understand what they were asking me or what was where they were actually going, I said, the answer is always going to be no, not yes, automatically. <laughs> the answer is no right. until I have a full crystal clear picture of what's taking place, when, who, what, why, where. And that and unfortunately, we have politicians that like to use the excuse. I didn't have a chance to read it. Well, you know what? If you didn't read it, the answer should be no. No, I yeah, I I completely agree and there was there was no need to move it that quickly and the religious liberty problems they're they're not that hard to find. I mean, they're kind of self-evident from from the text of the bill. I think the other thing that happened is the uh the sponsors of the bill, they threw in other stuff just to confuse it. They threw in the thing about race like, you know, the idea that the Supreme Court is going to overturn Loving versus Virginia. That's absurd. And the idea that any state 
state would outlaw uh, um, uh, interracial marriage is also absurd. But, you know, they were trying to put Republicans in a very uncomfortable position, like, oh, you're against same-sex marriage. You're against interracial. That was the kind of game that they were playing. And I think there was a lot of fear, um, as particularly in the House, about that. So, you know, they, they did what parents don't do, which is to, uh, to, vote, to vote yes, even though they may not have fully understood what was going on. Yeah, well, it is very disappointing. And, and you know, when you really look at all these attacks, and, and sure, religious freedom is, is right up there, but it really is an attack on children, right? Children deserve a biological mom and dad. And we continue to say, well, children are resilient, and we treat children as commodities. So if same-sex couples, you want to buy a child or you know, use surrogacy or whatever you want to do, that these children will adapt, everything will be fine. When in reality, we know, and the studies show that children raised in a household with their biological mom and dad who love each other, do much better in every area than those that don't. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think one of the one of the ways people think about this bill incorrectly is, well, the issue's been settled, right? Because the Supreme Court said so. But that's not really true, right? I mean, it does matter when our elected representatives further cement the idea that same-sex marriage is the equivalent to opposite-sex marriage. I mean, even though, uh, you know, if it was solely a codification of a Burgerfell, it might not really change anything legally. It still says something, and it communicates a message, and it socializes people to think in a particular way. We need to continue the fight about what marriage is, because it matters not just for the people in those marriage, not just for our culture as a whole, but as you pointed out, most importantly, for, for the kids. Well, and all you have to do is read about John the Baptist, right? His defense of marriage uh, resulted in his head being on a platter, but he was willing to do that for truth. Now it was a different issue with marriage, and it was something about remarriage and you know King Mary and his brother's wife. But the bottom line is he was defending marriage as it was meant to be, and we need to look ourselves in the mirror and say, "Am I willing to deal with whatever's going to come my way, like John the Baptist was, or am I going to cave because I can't stand the heat and I don't want people not to like me?" Yeah, and that's I think that's coming, and it's going to get worse. I mean, it's already bad. We know that a lot of creative professionals and religious employers. You know, one of the things that I'm I'm worried about is threats coming from non-governmental actors. Um, you know, you hear about financial institutions cutting people off, uh, no longer willing to do business with them because of their views on some controversial issue. Uh, we're starting to see, like you know, charitable entities like Amazon Smile. Re- ejecting certain nonprofits from their uh, program through which people who are purchasing things on Amazon can support their favorite nonprofit. Uh, You know, you see people using the ridiculous Southern Poverty Law Center list of hate groups to penalize and punish organizations who aren't on board. So it's, you know, we have to worry not just about the government and resist it, but we have to really pay attention to what's going on with non-governmental actors as well and resist that movement at the same time. Well, and in the end, right, do we really care about our salvation, right? Are we going to defend truth, whether it's life, marriage, religious liberty, those, you know, foundational issues, or do we let society you know, morph them into whatever they want to be and us just kind of go along because it's easier that way, right? In the end, it's easier not to confront 
evil and confront those that want to distort the truth. But it, in the end, it's, it's again, our salvation is at stake. And it really is uh, a chance for people to step up and to, and to defend these truths and not back down for them, because we're here at this particular time given an opportunity, right, to defend the truth. And uh, we see Jesus on the cross. He had no problem modeling it for us. The question is, are we going to have a problem following that model? Yeah, no, no, I agree. And we, you know, we've been blessed and privileged in this country to have a, a measure of religious freedom really unknown in history. And we've had a nation whose foundational principles have been consistent with biblical principles for a long time. And I think that's no longer true. You know, we can't agree on what a marriage is. We can't agree on what a human being is. We can't agree on what a male or a female is. And, you know, really for the first time, at least in an extensive and broad way, we're going to, people who follow Christ are going to be kind of out of step with the culture. And it just, it creates headwinds and you're swimming upstream, whatever metaphor you want to use. It's going to cause, it's going to require a lot more effort in the face of a lot more resistance. And I think it's a time of testing for people of faith because there will be costs. And honestly, we're not used to paying costs to, because of our faith. And we better get used to it quick because it's coming. And I just pray that, uh, that, that the church will hold firm and speak to the truth, not because we, we have anger or animosity towards our neighbors, but because we love them and we want what's best for them. Well, and actually, that's really the true act of love, right? When we defend truth and and call it out because we actually love people and that watering it down and, and having this false compassion right really leads people further astray we see it with the you know the gender ideology thing and and I've heard those that have you know struggled with that often say I just wish somebody would have told me the truth I don't know that I would have believed them but I wish somebody would have told me the truth and this defense of marriage is no different yeah, it, it absolutely right. I mean, we need courageous people to stand up. Um, you know, we're so concerned about our reputations. We're so concerned about being liked. That's kind of how human nature is in its fallen state. But I think with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can uh, care more about the right things, care less about our own personal reputations, and care more about the, the well-being of our neighbor and the well-being of our culture, the well-being of our country. Well, we're down to the last, you know, three minutes or so. Um, maybe explain a little bit about the Alliance for Defending Freedom, what you guys do, and how people can follow what you do, because you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on, right? People are coming to you like Jack Phillips and different people. Hey, help me. So you know what's going on out there, even if it might not make the headlines. Yeah, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is an alliance-building organization dedicated to keeping the door open for the gospel. Um, we have a, a handful of clearly defined and very important what we call generational wins. We're interested in marriage and the family. We're interested in religious freedom advancing. We're interested in protecting the sanctity of life. We're interested in advancing free speech, and we're interested in parental rights. And we do that in the legal and the political system and also through training. We train college students, we train law students, we train 
lawyers. Uh, obviously, litigation is one of the main things that we do. And a lot of the times we're defending people who've been sued. Sometimes we're on offense trying to establish uh, good legal principles that will protect people going forward. We're also involved in the legislative arena. Part of my job is to advocate uh, for our issues in Congress and in state legislatures. And we've got a growing team of folks doing that around the states. So um, God has blessed ADF tremendously since its beginnings in 1994 to where we are today. And uh, you can keep up with what we're doing a lot of different ways. One of the, probably the place to start is our website, uh, adflegal.org, adflegal.org. And there are newsletters that you can sign up for. You can monitor the blog that's part of our website. We're on social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, our Twitter feed is pretty fun to follow. It's just at ADF Legal. And, uh, you know, we, we appreciate your prayers. Well, and uh, prayers are, are very important. And, you know, the reminder is that you're defending people, but we live in a world, right, where the Justice Department is weaponized, right? We're going after pro-life leaders when pregnancy centers are being attacked, firebombed, you know, destroyed, and nothing's done there. So, we can't rely on the government to protect us. We have to live our faith, vote the way we need, you know, vote to defend these truths. But it's really incumbent upon us, right? Elections aren't going to change this. People's hearts and, and embracing uh, Jesus Christ is really what's going to change this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think the way that we try to do our advocacy is not just to get a bill passed or to win a case, but to make the public case for our position and try to persuade people that, you know, we're not just defending our rights. We're trying to defend something that's true. We're trying to propagate the idea, to persuade people that the things that we stand for are actually true and lead to individual and cultural uh, and societal flourishing. Well, it's always interesting to hear people say, well, you know, we need to modernize like like God of the God of the universe wasn't smart enough to see what was going to happen 2000 years later that, you know, things become obsolete. And, you know, these truths bring about, you know, love, joy, peace that really calms the society and makes the society function better. But when we get these attacks and we don't defend it you know, kind of shame on us. That's why I think what you guys do uh, for at the Alliance for Defending Freedom is so important. And I would encourage people to go on the website, follow what's going on, see these cases that are being brought up. Uh, but in the end, right, we need to pray for courage, wisdom, fortitude, that we have these virtues, that we can defend these truths. And Greg, again, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and uh, everything that's going on at uh, Alliance for Defending Freedom. Well, it's always great to be with you, Deacon Jeff, and thanks for your kind words and your encouragement. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.